this morning. First Corinthians six, verse 13 says for the stomach, excuse me, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined with a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and to prayer, and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And Father, we ask for the help and the assistance of your Holy Spirit, not only to have a heart and an ear that is willing to listen to what the voice of your Spirit would say to us through the truth of the Word of God this morning, but Lord, that you would be the one who would speak exactly what it is we need to hear from this portion of your inspired word that you gave to us for our good. So speak now through your spirit, and we ask together expectantly in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, as it pertains to the subject of sex, I think really we have two options. Either we can clearly listen to the lies of the world, which are very aggressive in what they want to say to us about the subject, or we can be willing to hear and accept God who created us, loves us, and would tell us the truth. And in this section of scripture this morning, the remainder of chapter six, God cautions against the destructiveness of sexual sin outside of the marriage relationship. And then as he comes to chapter seven, verse one to five, right afterwards, God then counsels about the importance of sexual expression within the marriage relationship once you are in that covenant commitment. Now, the city of Corinth, as we've talked about, a part of the ancient Greco-Roman culture, historically was known to be very corrupt in its morality, very loose in its sexual morals. In fact, the culture of the city was rampant with sexual promiscuity and free sexual indulgence in all types of forms and fashions. We even know archaeologically that there there was a large pagan temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love, where part of the religious system actually involved donating money to the temple, basically for the hire of the services of male and female prostitution. Now, it is in this sexually perverse cultural climate where the church of Corinth is. 
So it's right in the midst of this. You have a church and God's people right in that culture they're living in. And unfortunately, the present culture was now affecting the environment of the church as well. And those loose sexual morals and perspectives and promiscuity with an attitude of acceptance of those things was now infiltrating the church. And people within the church and those who were claiming to be God's people were now living in the practice of sexual sin, much like people even outside of the church in the world were. And so Paul has to address this destructive mindset of sexual sin really to protect and love. And you even see from chapter 7, verse 1, that he's actually answering some questions that they directly asked him, trying to sort out some of these things. Now, look, in this present culture we live in today, how fitting, honestly, if we're to be candid, is the same message for us. Because we live in a culture right now as well where in this day and age, loose and free sexual indulgence behavior is the norm. In fact, if we were to be very candid, to be sexually pure at marriage now is the rare exception in this generation. It's almost perceived as odd if you were to get married and still be sexually pure. It's the exception now rather than what should be the norm by God's best and God's design. And to engage in sexual activity whenever and with whomever you want to is almost perceived as your right. And we have a right, or we're consenting adults, don't tell us. Well, sadly, sexual sin was heavily infiltrating the ranks of the Lord's people in that day. And I tell you very candidly, it's doing the same today. It is infiltrating the ranks of the church to much the same degree. And the problem really is that we as believers have forgotten that it is God himself who created us by design, who also was the one who created our sexual differences, our sexual desires, and sexual expression. And to the degree that we've forgotten that, I think that's where we begin to get off track. We forget God, who's one who designed us male and female with sexual distinction. He created us that way. God designed us with a sexual drive, like a thirst drive and a hunger drive and other capacities of our physical bodies. God created the sexual act and expression as something to be exercised within the confines of a marital relationship, a designated area for that. And if we fail to learn accurately from God's word, what he has told us as our creator, the way these things are to operate, and instead of living obediently to what God says in faith, instead, if we start taking our cues from the world system who's trying to sell us their ideas, we are only going to continue to suffer as we devalue God's proper design and individually and collectively keep reaping the painful consequences of transgressing against God's ways and God's design. So Paul addressing these things in verse 13, therefore says to us as he starts to address this foods for the stomach, he says, and the stomach for foods. Now that believed to be a common statement in the culture that they would use at that time. And then he says, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body he says is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So Paul again is trying here to counteract, as we've been seeing, the wrong thinking of the culture that was infiltrating the church. You can tell the reasoning of Corinth was being influenced by the world culture. Paul probably grabs this phrase that was a catchphrase, verse 13 foods for the stomach, 
and the stomach for foods. In other words, the worldly mindset was human desires exist by design. And so if they exist by design, if we have desires, desires are meant to be satisfied and fulfilled. That's why they exist. And so the idea was God gave us an appetite and a hunger drive. And he designed food as the solution for that desire to be fulfilled. And they would say, isn't that true? Well, therefore, if food was made in order to be indulged and the stomach made to be fulfilled with the desires it had, their mindset was, well, since we satisfy our other appetites, why would we not have the same approach toward the desire and the appetite for sexual expression as well? We have the desire for it. We understand how it's fulfilled, the solution for it. So we should be free to indulge that appetite the same way. And they were trying to put all physical drives on the same level for justification. And Paul's argument is, look, you cannot compare the purpose of your hunger drive and your need for food and desire for food and say, look, that's the same purpose and approach for every desire and drive within your human body. That's just wrong thinking. And he understood, look, God has no permanent purpose for food or even for the use of the digestive system long term. That's why Paul says in verse 13, look, one day God is going to destroy both food and the stomach and the hunger drive. In other words, one day saying these things are temporary and God will do away with them. However, in contrast, God does have a permanent purpose for the entirety of the body that he has given to us as people. And that purpose is the physical resurrection and glorification of our bodies. That's why Paul's saying there in verse 14, God both raised up the Lord Jesus, that is his physical body, resurrected it, transformed it, and also will raise us up in the same way by his power. So again, the idea is poor stewardship that God has given a body to us that belongs to him and he will one day transform it to just use that body in a way that we want to justify that is outside of God's design. That's why Paul's declaring there in verse 13, look at it. He says, the body is not for sexual immorality, but it's for the Lord. It belongs to him and the Lord for the body. So the highest purpose and usage of our human body is not just to gratify our natural drives and desires. That's what Paul's saying. The highest use of your body isn't to just indulge every desire and drive that you find within it. The highest purpose of our human body is to use it to fulfill the Lord's purposes for our lives and to realize he's given us this physical frame and the body he's given to us And that's why he says in these verses, the body is for the Lord. He's given us a body. It's for his expression on this earth. But the highest purpose of our physical body is to offer that as an instrument and a vessel unto the Lord. And then in a secondary way, other things may be utilized and exercised through the body in a secondary fashion in a healthy and appropriate way. So it's pretty obvious without saying That's why Paul says, look, the body is for the Lord. It's not, he says there, verse 13, for indulging sexual immorality, sexual sin. Again, exercising the sexual desire outside of the marriage relationship. Again, remember, the sexual drive and the sexual act is a God-given thing. And it is important, I can't understate, to recognize that truth. We were created by God. He designed the first man and the first woman as those who would be in relationship together. He made us that way. And look, sex existed before sin 
ever entered the world. So sex in and of itself, sadly, we've got this distorted mindset because it's been polluted. Sex is not dirty. It's not an inappropriate thing. It's not something we should snicker at or be weird about. Sex existed before sin entered in chapter 3 in the Bible. God created it as a wholesome, dignified, proper, and appropriate thing when he created man and woman and gave us everything that he gave us for the process. And therefore, sex has a wonderful purpose and acted upon in an appropriate means when the time is right, yet safely within the established boundaries of a marriage. That's why Hebrews 13 says in verse 4, marriage is honorable among all and the marriage bed is undefiled. It's undefiled. Anything outside of that is defiled, but God says it's not defiled within the marriage relationship. So sex does have a proper outlet where it's to be freely exercised and indulged within the singular and safe confines of a committed marital relationship between a man and a woman in a lifelong commitment to one another. In fact, it's even going to be encouraged, as I said, when we get to chapter 7. However, you take sex outside of that boundary, that clear, unique boundary that God's given, and what Paul is expressing here is God knows it is always sinful, and it's displeasing, and it is destructive on top of that. And this is the concern that God has. He goes on, verse 15, to say, do you not know? Again, this is the idea, these trigger statements, these questions, almost he's trying to say, you know this. He's not saying don't, you know, you, you know this. You know it in your conscience, he says. Our conscience testifies to what's true. Do you not know that your bodies, he says, are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them Members of a harlot or a prostitute? He says, certainly not with an exclamation point. So knowing our lives as believers, spirit, soul, and body have been joined together with the Lord Jesus Christ and we enter into a relationship with him. Paul is saying, should we then involve the Lord's presence through our actions of sexual immorality in those disgraceful acts and include the Lord's presence in that dishonorable process? He's saying uh, that should be something we should absolutely not. Should we force him who is one with us to behold and participate in those kind of dishonorable activities of sexual immorality when he is one with us as a child of God? That's why Paul says in the end of verse 15, certainly not. The idea it should be unthinkable for someone who understands that God is with them and Jesus is one with their life. It should astonish us and kind of shock us that, oh my gosh, that's unthinkable to include the Lord in such a thing. He then goes on to say to us, to educate us now from scripture as to what happens in sexual expression, verse 16, to say, or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot, to a prostitute in a sexual act, is one body with her? For, quoting from Genesis 2, he says, the two, he says, God says, shall become one flesh. So Paul here is declaring that during the act of intercourse between two people, a man and a woman, there is a deep bond that is being formed. And he refers to God's institution of these things in Genesis chapter 2, the two becoming one flesh in the physical act of intimacy, again, before sin ever polluted the process in any way. 
And he's saying, look, God wants us to understand when two people are participating in sexual expression, they are actually being joined together in a profound way. The two are actually becoming one, God says, in an incredible, mysterious way, physically, mentally, mystically, emotionally. And look, I don't know how to perfectly articulate and define what does happen in that sexual act between two people. But I know that the Bible's teaching that God's way of creating sexual expression between a man and a woman was created in a way whereby it transpires where there is this bonding experience that happens. It's almost as if when two people engage in sexual expression, sort of a mystical glue is unleashed between the two people that bonds them together. And that was originally created by God's design to strengthen the bond of marriage so that it would last permanently because two people would feel so bonded because they were sharing something that such was a bonding experience, the way that God created it to be utilized. That was the result. A powerful attachment happens in the sexual act because you are sharing a part of yourself in very deep ways with another person. There's a bonding that is unavoidable. So it is good for marriage, but it is very wrong and counterproductive outside of marriage. And this is what God out of love is cautioning us about. Look what he says in verse 17. He says, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Again, he uses this picture many times in the word of God. He does where from Ephesians 5 and other places that the marriage relationship is like a picture of the relationship spiritually that we experience with the Lord Jesus. Now, he's comparing the human relationship with marriage, which is a picture of the spiritual union and relationship of us sort of being joined and married together with the Lord. Apparently, in the same way a bonding happens as the husband and wife become one flesh, through intimacy in a similar way, although obviously a much more sacred way, we are joined and unified with Jesus in the realm of the spirit when we surrender our lives to him in that unification experience and salvation. An amazing union between our human spirit and his spirit happens in the same way, you may say, that a physical union happens in intimacy and the bond between a man and a woman. So spiritually speaking, a much higher and deeper bond exists between us and the Lord. And he's using this in a picturesque way of that eternal bond of Jesus and saying to us, look, understanding these things, this is where Paul's going with this, understanding these realities to pollute, listen, to pollute our spiritual bond with Jesus through sexual immorality by being intimate and bonding physically with another person through sexual sin is going to do nothing really but utterly dishonor the Lord. It's like committing spiritual adultery against Jesus and it harms our relationship with the Lord tremendously when we do such things. That's why he gives the advice he does in verse 18. Flee sexual immorality or sexual sin. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Again, notice the Bible's instruction in this area. One word, flee. 
If you don't know what that means, it means run. It means run. Avoid as practically and as quickly as you possibly can. Just always be on the run from the temptation to indulge lustful desires in an inappropriate way because they will always be advertising themselves to your flesh. You're a human being. Let's not discount biology. God created you the way he did. You know, get over this nonsense. Oh, we're both Christians. We're, we're praying together. We're out at Sunset Hill till two in the morning, but we're praying together. Well, that ain't going to last long because you're human. You just flee such things. You run from them. You give no opportunity for the flesh. You don't take chances. What you do in regards to the temptation in this area is you do everything you can to put as much distance between you and that failure as possible. Look, the greatest example of that, read Genesis 39. Joseph, as a young man, as a teenager, found himself incredibly tempted. An older, beautiful, powerful woman literally grabbed him by his garment and said, come to bed with me. And it says, Joseph ran. He fleed. He didn't say, Lord, please help me right now. None of that. He just ran. He just ran. Did everything he could to just separate himself from the situation through an act of avoidance. 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us it is God's will that we abstain from sexual immorality and that each of us learn how to possess, control our own vessel, our body, with sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the heathen who do not know God. In other words, God says, this is my will. Abstinence was my idea before everyone else because I created the whole process. And he says, it is our responsibility to learn how, notice it's a learning part, to learn how to control our vessel with its desires and with the pressures and temptations. It's our responsibility so that we don't behave like those outside in the world. And God even gives a personal reason for that in verse 18 here. He says, flee sexual immorality. And then look what he says, because every sin that a man does is outside of the body. But then the one place in the Bible, God gets real specific. But he who commits sexual immorality, sexual sin, sins against his own body. Notice God wants us to hear and know that sexual sin, unlike all other sins to a degree, is incredibly destructive and damaging. The best way I can illustrate that, the illustration has been around for years, but it's very fitting, is that sex is much like fire, right? If you light a fire and burn a fire within the safe confines of a fireplace, it's beautiful, it adds atmosphere, it can be productive, it can create light, it can create heat. If, if you put a fire within the boundaries intended for a fireplace, it's safe, it's beneficial, it has good purposes. But you take that same exact fire and you move it three feet outside of the fireplace into the middle of your living room floor because you took it outside of the boundaries that were safe and intended for it. Now that same fire becomes incredibly dangerous, damaging, destructive. Look, well, in the same way, sex is like fire. Within the fireplace of marriage, the boundaries God intended purposeful, beneficial, everything God intended it to be used for, but you take it outside of the boundaries of marriage and all of a sudden now the same God-given thing as a gift becomes something because it was disregarded in a way where it's now dangerous, damaging, and incredibly destructive. Again, whether it be premarital sex or adultery or homosexuality, it will bring incredibly damaging consequences that are unavoidable. 
So look, that means if a person is willing to be sexually active before marriage, they know there's going to be scars. There's baggage that goes along with that, that you cannot shed. I believe Jesus can heal, but there are scars and pain and baggage that go along with the destructiveness of premarital sex. In the same way, if you ever violate your marriage covenant, you know the havoc of the pain of sexual sin. And what God, who loves us and knows what's best for us, says what he says in verse 18, it's intended that we would recognize, look, more than all other things, it is incredibly damaging. This is why God is saying this here. It is the deepest and most mystical union that two people can experience. And please hear me, folks. Sexual intercourse is not just a physical act alone. That's what the world's trying to sell us and trying to sell our children. It is not just a physical act. It is a bonding experience that takes place because of the way that God made it in such a way where two people become united beyond just physically mentally, emotionally, in all types of other ways. And when it is violated, that gift intended for a married couple, the effects of it are far-reaching and damaging. That's why he says in verse 18, lest we miss it, he who commits sexual morality is sinning against their own body. They're bringing destructiveness, harmfully affecting themselves and affecting their whole being because you're giving part of yourself away to another person and you can never get it back. You gave a part of yourself to someone else. They robbed that from you. And they robbed it even from your spouse that truly belonged to them. And these are the damaging effects that God, again, in love wants to spare us from because these outcomes become reaped. Again, so many outcomes of damage and consequence, whether it's an unwanted pregnancy, that's one of the damaging consequences of sex outside of marriage relationship whether it's a sexually transmitted disease, whether it's on forming healthy bonds to someone who we're not married to, but just being sexually active with, and then a bond is formed with a person that you should not be bonded to and that you're not supposed to be attached to long-term, but now you're struggling because you're bonded to them because of the sexual sin. Or whether it is the mental or emotional baggage, the scars that go along with that, the feelings of shame or guilt, the distorted perspectives we then develop in our minds that can be things that carry all the way in and begin to affect our marriage relationship later on. And those who have been primarily sexually active before they got married understand the realities of that. Is it can bring baggage then even to your married life later on. So God says, look, I want you to avoid the damage of this. Out of love, he's cautioning us that we wouldn't experience the pain and bring suffering upon ourselves So then in verse 19, he brings the focus back to the Lord to encourage towards purity those who have not yet ever been sexually active and still are retaining their purity. He says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and are not your own? For you were bought at a price, he says, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So notice he tells them really, I believe, kind of to consider three things that are helpful with maintaining personal purity. 
whether you are still a virgin and you've never been married yet or whether you're someone who's failed in the past but you've asked Jesus to forgive you and now you're trying to keep your purity until you someday enter into marriage relationship. These are God's encouragements. The first thing he tells us in verse 19 is please consider the presence of my Holy Spirit. Please consider the presence of my Holy Spirit in light of these things. He says, do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Again, if you're a Christian... The Holy Spirit entered inside of you, and he is seeing, he is experiencing to a degree a body being misused and abused in sexual immorality and being grieved from right within you as he's having to participate in this shameful act that he knows full well is going to bring tremendous pain and problems as the end result. So he says, remember the presence of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, he says, remember the price that was paid for you. He says in verse 20, you were bought at a price. He says, you're not your own. You were bought at a price, he says. You're not your own. God paid for you. Again, the precious blood of Christ was the payment. And he says, consider the depth of love that God expressed. He's let his son die to purchase you. And he's saying, that's how much value you have to God. He's saying, don't undervalue yourself. Your life has tremendous worth. Don't diminish that. And thirdly, he says, remember that you are the property of God. Consider that. You're God's property. It will help you in your purity. He says, you were bought at a price. You're not your own. Therefore, glorify God in your body, he says, and in your spirit, which are God's. Again, that was settled when we came to Jesus as Savior. He purchased us. We belong to him. And that's why he says this will help you because you realize, okay, if I belong to Jesus, if God purchased me and I belong to God, then I really don't have the authority over my life, my body, God does. And so what I then should never do is basically take a life that belongs to God and use it selfishly the way that I want to use it. What will help in the purity process is to remember, I don't have the right to just act however I feel or do whatever I want because my life belongs to God. It doesn't really belong to me. I'm not my own. And as we remember that, it helps us so that we're not seeking to do what we wish or what we feel like, but remembering I don't have the right to pollute a body that belongs to God. I don't have the right to pervert my spirit, which truly belongs unto God. I need to preserve those things because they belong to God. That's why he says at the end there of the chapter, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. That's how we're to live. My life and even my spirit, everything within me, it belongs to God. And I'm to use my physical body. I'm to use my internal spirit to try and glorify God. That's to be the aim. Look, you make that your proactive aim. That will help protect you in the area of maintaining personal purity in regards to something that's a very big temptation and struggle for all of us as people living certainly in the culture that we do. Now, having spoke of the error of abusing sex in selfish ways and the damaging effect, the Holy Spirit now in the very next breath begins to address God's solution. Again, God doesn't say just don't because God created us. God says, wait, and I have a solution and an outlet for that. And so he says, it's important to recognize there is a proper outlet. So God now counsels about the importance of sexual expression within the marriage. 
He cautions about doing it outside of marriage because it's destructive. But now in the next chapter here, these verses, he begins to speak about the importance of sexual expression when we're within a marriage, which is what God wants for us as married couples. He says, verse one of chapter seven, now concerning the things which you wrote to me. So they had asked Paul some questions and we're gonna see in chapter seven, as we go through it, they asked him questions about single life, about marriage life, about remarriage, about divorce, about sexual expression as well within the marriage relationship, which is why he addresses that first. He goes on verse one to say, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, the idea there is referring to the ability to remain in a single state if indeed you have no desire or need for romantic companionship. It seems Paul was in that status at this stage of life. Paul sees it as a good thing if it is your calling spiritually and desire to be unmarried. And he's gonna speak more about that as we go through the chapter. The benefits of a single status as a Christian if you are content by the grace of God in that status. Now notice, though it's good, he says, to be single if that's what you're called to, he's not saying it's better. And the chapter will show that. Paul's just saying, look, if you can live as I live, that's good. If you can be content and you can stay pure, that's great. But he doesn't say that singleness is just a good thing and marriage has a a, a problem to it. He's saying both of them, if you're in the right calling, they have purposes and benefits. And he'll allude about this as we go through the chapter. He's saying, if you can navigate singleness without sexual failure, then he says, great. However, look at verse two, nevertheless, and this is why he addresses it because of sexual immorality out in the world. And he says, let allow each man to have his own wife and each woman to have her own husband. So Paul quickly then following says, look, even as it's good to be single, if that's your calling, he says, it is just as good to be married as well. In fact, honestly, that was God's original design in creation that one man would be in a relationship with one woman. That was God's basis for instituting marriage for humanity. God declared in his original design, it's not good, remember, for man to be alone. So he said, I'm gonna make a helper suitable for him, knowing the way God created us and our bodies and our needs and the things that exist. God says, look, it's not good for a man to be alone. Genesis 2 says, God said, I'll make a helper, a completer for him. And a man, he says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Again, there's the physical union. A man and his wife shall be naked and unashamed. God commanded them, it says the Bible, to be fruitful and to multiply. So indeed, married life is good and holy in God's sight and has many valuable purposes for us as well. Now, With that understanding of God's original natural design, that's why Paul says here in verse two, knowing the pressures as well of the culture, that's why he says, nevertheless, because of sexual morality and its temptation, let each man have his own wife as the solution and let each woman have her own husband. So Paul's indicating just one of the many reasons and purposes that marriage is good is to have a proper outlet for sexual expression that is safe and appropriate with the natural desires that God created within us as human beings. And this can be found as it's exercised properly through having a marriage relationship, 
with someone of the opposite sex. Again, celibacy, which is the condition of being unmarried, may be for some, but it's a calling. And please understand, it's not a more spiritual calling. And sometimes that's been conveyed even among the ranks of church. Sometimes it's more spiritual to be celibate. If you are not called to be celibate, it's not more spiritual. It's going to be the thing that sets you up for a downfall and a failure in that area. Some may be called, but it is the exception, the rare exception, I would venture to say, rather than the general rule. The general rule for most is that we honestly need to find a spouse and enter into a monogamous relationship with someone of the opposite sex to live out the design that God has created us with as a man and as a woman. Most of us need a spouse, and that's why Paul's addressing that there in verse Two, that we should have a husband, we should have a wife. Now, we are at verse 3, and time of departure is at hand, if that would be necessary for you. Verse 3 tells us this, instruction to the married couples. Let the husband, therefore, render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does have authority over his own body, but the wife does. The instruction, verse 5, clearly, do not deprive one another except with consent and for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, Paul here, being directed by the Holy Spirit, begins to give God's instruction to the married couples in regards to what God knew was necessary for married couples to hear regarding expression of sexual activity in the marriage relationship. Now, understanding that this is not a marriage conference and a church service, let me summarize God's direction here in a few main points without just skirting the truths of the text. The first thing that's an obvious point being taught by God here is that in the marriage relationship, as an act of servanthood in love, a spouse has a responsibility and marital duty to satisfy their spouse sexually. That's clearly what God is declaring here. Just as strongly as God in his word forbid sexual sin because of its damaging effect when engaged in outside of the marriage in a contrasting emphasis god strongly commands now married couples to engage in sexual expression because it is damaging if they don't because it is harmful to the marriage relationship if it is not exercised because it is the right and productive thing for a married couple because it helps their marriage and also protects their walk with the Lord. And so God here begins to address this. This is the proper channel for expression. And in marriage, sexual expression is both a right as well as a responsibility of each spouse in the relationship. Remember, the most commonly used expression in the Bible for marriage is always one flesh. God used it in Genesis. Jesus himself used it when he spoke. One flesh. Again, my point being, God didn't talk about marriage and called it one spirit, one mind, one heart. I mean, there's so many other beautiful poetic ways, right, that God really could have described the unification of a man and a woman. God chose the physical expression of one flesh. 
because God knew the importance of that very thing, referring to that physical bond that happens through intimacy between a husband and a wife, because it's through that channel of physical union, listen, that a marriage is truly consummated initially, and it is through the ongoing expression of physical intimacy that a marriage continues to be connected in proper, healthy intimacy. And so God, therefore, says in verse 3, referring to the affection due to one another, and again, the context here is romantic and sexual intimacy, the affection due, not just Hallmark cards. He's talking about intimacy here. That's the context of the whole passage that we're looking at. He's saying the husband does not have right over their body, he's going to say, the wife over theirs, but what we do have is an obligation, And he says that obligation, verse 3, is that we are to render to each other the affection that is due to one another. As a spouse, I have an obligation to realize there is affection physically, intimately, that is due to my spouse. It's part of the marriage relationship. And so God here is instructing for our welfare that we're to remain aware of our partner's desires and needs and as a loving act of servanthood, That's the idea as an act of servanthood and love to respond to their needs accordingly. In the sex act, the spouse is not just seeking sexual gratification. That's the world's mindset. The world's mindset is to use people for gratification. God's mindset is actually the opposite. God says it's a servanthood thing. You're to be looking for their gratification, for their pleasure and fulfillment because you're a servant and you're showing love. And it's not just about you, it's about them, that you're caring for them. And so you're expressing affection in that way to render, to supply and give due affection as the result of owing it to them and deciding to become married. So that also means understanding my spouse's differences, as we all have differences of desire levels and preferences and recognizing that we are different, but that I am to honor respectfully and lovingly biblically constantly seeking to put serving them first again the scripture teaches us in philippians 2 that we're to look out not only for our own interests but also for the interests of others and that's just start in marriage and so we're to take in consideration their needs and their desires and just as in other areas of sexual reality he says here the husband and wife they're to render they're to give supply affection due to one another as an obligation The second thing that's clear in the text here is that in the marriage relationship, I'm to realize, as he says in verse four, that the actual authority of my body is no longer just my own. I now share it in one flesh together with my spouse. And again, that word verse four there, authority, that's a pretty strong term that God chose to use. It speaks of control or ownership or power. The idea is that so that we may meet the romantic desires of our spouse in a caring, loving way, we fully surrender every part of our being over to them that we might fully share every part of our life. And so therefore we surrender ourselves and care for them to meet their needs as an act of sacrificial love. Now, let me just say what verse four is not saying. And this comes from years of marital counseling as well. Verse 4 is not God declaring that a spouse has a right to selfishly use their spouse as their slave. The Bible says, I have authority over your body. 
Look, the Bible also says not to be selfish and be a jerk. That's sinful and wrong, too. And God would never tell us to behave that way. What God is saying is on the proactive side, not that one spouse can use the other spouse as their slave. God is saying that out of surrender and love and sacrifice, we should intentionally be saying, I give myself to you. My body doesn't, I want to give my body to you as an act of love to meet your needs, to render affection and that which is necessary to love and care and fulfill one another. That's what verse four is conveying. Verse five, the third and final thing we see is that in marriage, I am never to personally refrain as a spouse from supplying sexual activity. He says directly in verse five, do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, but come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Notice God says we do not have the right to withhold physical intimacy and activity from our spouse. Verse three, render, give, supply what is due to your spouse. Verse four, God says, you no longer have authority over your own body. You decided to get married and you surrendered that to your spouse. Verse five, he then says a third time, do not deprive, withhold, keep back. Do not deprive, he says, one another. So to deprive or hold back sex, listen, as a bargaining tool or a form of manipulation is wrong. To deprive your spouse sexual intimacy as a way to punish them is wrong. To deprive your, deprive your spouse from sexual intimacy because of the way you feel at times can be wrong because we are to be servant-hearted and sacrificial as well as the fact that it can be very damaging. He adds one allowance. Notice it's, it's evident there in verse five in regards to this. He says, first of all, when there has been mutual consent to seek the Lord together. Notice he says there, do not deprive one another except one time. He says, for consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. So what's the one allowance? If both of you with mutual consent, notice, Mutual consent, that doesn't mean one party decides. I want to seek the Lord in fasting and prayer for the rest of our marriage. Mutual consent, we are going to mutually consent for a reason we believe spiritually to refrain temporarily. If it's mutual consent, God says that's acceptable because you are one now. One party doesn't get to decide that. And he says it's for seeking the Lord if it's necessary to focus on the things of the Lord, maybe pray through something. But notice what he says as well. It's to be temporary. Please don't miss that because you see what he says in verse five. But then come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. It is not to be a prolonged thing that is dangerous, dangerous for marriage. God's word is clear. Single people are never supposed to live like married people. And married people are not supposed to live like single people. They're supposed to live like married people. And God, out of love, cautions us because he knows Satan's agenda, and that's to exploit us in this area of tremendous human vulnerability. And God lovingly doesn't want us suffering. The consequences as a single person or as a married person, God says, I don't want you to suffer. Don't let Satan exploit you and destroy 
something in your life that will be very painful and damaging because of our lack of self-control. As a single person, we're to avoid the destructive damage of sexual sin, and as married people, we are to respect the importance of sexual expression. Let's stand together and